0: Hello, and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. On this episode, I am very honored to be speaking with Herb Stern, who has written a new novel called Sins of the Fathers. Herb is a former U.S. attorney for the District of New Jersey who prosecuted the mayors of Newark, Jersey City, and Atlantic City, and served as judge of the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey, is a trial lawyer. He also served as judge of the United States Court for Berlin. There, he presided over a hijacking trial in the occupied American sector of West Berlin. His book about the case, Judgment in Berlin, won the 1974 Freedom Foundation Award and became a film starring Martin Sheen and Sean Penn. He co-authored Wolf, a novel, with Alan Winter. He also wrote Diary of a DA, as well as the multi-volume legal work, Trying Cases to Win. In his newest novel, Sins of the Father, the sequel to Wolf about Hitler's rise to power, he tells the dramatic true story of the prime minister that undermined the coup to topple the regime, delivered Czechoslovakia to Hitler, saved the Fuhrer's life, and paved the road to World War II. So I'm very honored to have you here. And unfortunately, we couldn't have your co-author, Alan Winter, here, but I'm very, very glad to have you on. I think especially right now in the times we're living in, this is a very, very important novel. I think it's always important to re-examine history and actually look at it for what it really is and not what we want to imagine it is and not you know think it's so far removed that it couldn't happen again. So I think this is a very, very important novel. So I'm very honored to be talking with you. So thank you again for being on. So I wanted to know first, I know Alan unfortunately isn't here with us, but you did write this one and Wolf with Alan. So are there challenges and benefits to working with another author on a novel like this?
1: Oh yes. Um, first of all we we wrote both these we wrote both these books uh, in just a hair over four years, which um, uh, takes a lot of effort because we this is not a full-time job for me. I'm also a practicing lawyer. So, having two people uh, with the enormous scope of the works, because it deals with uh, Germany from the close of World War I at the end of 1918 till uh, since of the Fathers' Ends um, at the close of 1938, so that's 20 years. Uh, the amount of research involved was really quite enormous, and the amount of writing was a lot. So having a partner is very important. I don't think that the work could have been done in that time without it. Challenging, yes, because obviously people don't always agree on every single thing and you you, uh, you know, you get the benefits of your bargains, but you get the detriments as well. So you get you, you, you have to learn to compromise and and be flexible. But it worked. It worked well enough in book one so that we went on to do do book two. And the reader will have to judge for himself and herself, you know, uh, whether it was okay.
0: I mean, really, I think people should read this novel solely also to learn, I think, about history that we might not know about or that we aren't taught in school, unfortunately. So I think it's very important. And um, it gelled well, so it never seemed like... I mean, it was a really... Easy read too. It was intriguing, you know. It was one of those the page turner, so it definitely worked. You both definitely succeeded in writing a very, very, very good novel. So
1: well, we had two objects really, and sometimes these objects really conflict, and it and and it's difficult the, the two the two purposes were to be sure to entertain, uh, but to be historically accurate to a punctilio because we we wanted very very badly to use the vehicle of a novel to educate people and in these two books um, of course you're focusing on sins uh, of the fathers which is the second book and it's very appropriate today because it's it's all leaping off the headlines I mean Mm -hmm. it it largely deals with uh, very significantly deals with Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia and, and, and how he came to do that and, and his scheming out how to use the separatists in the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia as an excuse for taking the whole of Czechoslovakia. It's as though so Putin looked at the Hitler playbook and just emulated it this a week. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. But in our desire to entertain, we really had one rule. We, we would not make up facts of history. And the deeper we got into it, the thing that we found that was amazing was that uh, how much of the actual history is misunderstood and misrepresented in history books. For example, how many of us know that uh, the German generals were adamantly opposed to Hitler's uh, adventurism in Austria and in Czechoslovakia, and surreptitiously and secretly reached out to the English, sent a delegation over to try to meet with the Prime Minister of England, Chamberlain, who refused to meet with him. He viewed them as traitors. And they secretly met with Churchill while in England. And uh, Churchill furthered their, uh, their efforts and actually gave them a secret letter. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is all historically, Accurate, yeah, no, and it's quite thrilling. And could, could you imagine two successive chiefs of the German General Staff actually doing that? But they did, and uh, nonetheless, the Prime Minister of England uh, wouldn't support them. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a long answer. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we wanted to write a thriller, and hopefully, we had. But 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 we would not sacrifice. The actual history, and instead tried to use the thriller as a vehicle to make people understood what actually happened. Yeah, which is very, very important, I think.
0: Yeah, and like he said, I mean, most characters in the novel were real people, yes. but there are some fictitious characters, including the protagonist, yes. Friedrich Richard. So why did you want the story? And I know he's also the protagonist in Wolf, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And why did you want the story to be told from a fictitious character's viewpoint?
1: Well, uh, there were a lot of reasons. First of all, it gave us enormous scope. Um, it was a life that hadn't been lived, so we could live it the way we wanted it to. If we had tried to use a real person, we would have been because we wanted to be historically accurate. We had we would have been confined to whatever whatever that person actually lived and saw. So in creating a fictitious character who moved among all the real people, while we were limited to what those real people did, we had an enormous scope of the character that we created to put him where we wanted him to be so he could see and hear and report to us uh, what occurred. Um, and we created the character with no uh, background. We made him a, um, a uh, wounded soldier in World War I who, uh, as a result of his traumatic injuries, uh, lost his identity. That is to say, he, he had to be made over uh, in terms of plastic surgery. He had no memory. He was a, a man without a memory. And, and so that freed him up to be whatever the... Uh, going forward... Uh, with no prejudices, no points of view. It, it created a new life in that moment that enabled us to view through the window of his eyes the characters and the events as they actually occurred.
0: And do you think he also served as sort of a stand-in for the reader at some points as well? Like it's almost like the reader's taking this journey?
1: Well, I think that that's true, Aaron. I think that um, I know when I read a book, or when I read a novel, I tend to identify with the protagonist, uh, mm-hmm. and so I'm sure that the reader uh, will identify, and if we if we've been successful, will identify with the protagonist, and will you know his eyes become the reader's eyes, and his emotions the reader's emotions. That be posed one enormous difficulty, um, which I can get into now or, or wait until you ask me.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you can get into that now. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, we can lead into to what the difficulty is, especially since he's so close to Hitler in well, this that's novel. Exactly
1: the, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly the difficulty. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: And it's precisely because the reader will, or so we hope, and I think we know that it worked because we have a prior book with him in which he starts his relationship with Hitler. We had to make him close enough to Hitler so that he could be around for the important events as they occurred during the next 20 years. And yet uh, we could not have have him become a monster, which uh, Number of the people that he (laughs) had to deal with were. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a Hitler, you have a Himmler, you have a a Goring, you have a Goebbels, you know, the whole crowd of uh, rotten (laughs) tomatoes. So we had to uh, make sure that he was not an enthusiastic supporter of all that he saw even while making it possible for him to be close enough to these people so that he could be the reporter of the, uh, of, the uh, of the scope of the events mm-hmm. so that was a task and a challenge
0: yeah yeah because you know as as you've noted even after thousands of books That have been written about Hitler, there still has not been an accurate portrait written about him. So, and I think the reason that is, is I think many people don't want to see Hitler as anything other than pure evil. Like they don't want to see any kind of human side to him or anything like that, because I think it makes people comfortable and helps some believe that the atrocities of the Holocaust could never happen again. But in your story, Hitler comes off as very real and human. I mean, even having moments where he's meeting the parents of a woman that he has been secretly, um, you know, having an affair with. He's basically, you can describe it in there that they're basically married without anybody knowing they're married. And that's Eva. Um, And he gets very uh, nervous almost in front of the parents and kind of this totally different thing than, you know, the tyrant that we know of and that we think of. Why was it so important for you to show other sides of Hitler that others may be afraid to show?
1: You know, I've been reading and studying about this stuff for a number of decades (laughs) and the the more I did, the more I came to understand that the portrayal that we see of Hitler in the so-called history books and so-called biographies is very far from what he actually was. Uh, let's make no mistake about it. He was every bit the monster, mm-hmm. every bit the force of evil. But he was a man. He was a man who lived and loved, and who had his, his uh, strong points as well as his maniacal weak points. Uh, weak points is not an adequate description. And that the portrait that we've been reading about is very far from what the man was. And we, I, for one, have never been understand, able to understand why. Uh, well, I've always understood why it is important to study who he was, because we want to prevent such a person from ever doing such things again, or being in a position to do that. But I've never understood why it is that we... Shy away from trying to really understand who he was, and and to present him in a way that was far from what it was. It's almost like we're uh, unable to accept the fact that occasionally he did a nice thing, you know, uh, or that he had real friends, or that he had lovers that he cared about, and who who he you know actually did nice things for, because we 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 dream that somehow this will put him on his side or uh, excuse what he did. Well, it doesn't put us on his side. It doesn't excuse what he did. Nothing could ever excuse what he did. But I, for one, don't understand why we want to study a fictional character. And, and the irony of, of, of the book Wolf and, and Sins is It's labeled fiction because it's told, the story's told by a fictional character. But I assure you, (laughs) the facts are much, facts recounted are much closer to what actually occurred, including who the man was. Now, you you pointed to an incident where he meets uh, the parents of uh, Eva Braun for the first time. That actually happened. Uh, for ex- uh, The source of that was an interview of Fritz Braun, Eva's father, in which he recounted exactly what happened in the restaurant uh, when Hitler met them. And there are many other such, such instances. You know, Hitler was, uh, you know, he, he did fiendish things, but he happened to be a bohemian. You know, he wrote poetry, he was an aficionado of the opera. His ambition was to be an architect. He studied the, the architecture of, um, for example, Paris. Um, his, his chief architect, who he made at the end, Minister of War, uh, in an un, unreported uh, interview, which actually he did of himself. He wrote it down, question and answer. In 1945, a few weeks after Hitler uh, committed suicide, this, inter- this document's never been cited by a single historian. I don't believe they know it exists. I mean, he reports that this man was such a student of architecture that when Hitler made a secret trip to Paris after the fall of France in 1940, he knew the, the he, and he went to, to see the architecture that he'd been studying. He knew the interior of all the Paris buildings that he went to see, that he had studied for years. I mean, we, we have no sense of this why the the historians and the biographers presented him as a man incapable of a relationship with a woman. And it's ridiculous. He had any number of girlfriends. As a matter of fact, the name Wolf was taken from the fact that that's what he called himself when he kind of chased after women and he had a pension for late teenage girls. And there just can't be any dispute about it. And yet the biographies and the histories to this day, Uh, present him as somebody who was incapable of being with a woman, even questioned whether he was uh, uh, sexually capable of doing it. And it's total nonsense, really (laughs) nonsense. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the notes I sent you.
0: I I did. I did. And I saw, you know, I saw lots of quotes and they're saying, you know, I mean, like people that knew him saying he was always polite and kind and nice to me. And, you know, and I think, Honestly, I think for me personally, it's scarier when someone is such a quote unquote comes off as so nice and cordial and polite and does such evil atrocities, you know, it's it's because it's just even um, harder to cope with, I think. Uh, it, that's why I think people do that is because then if someone says, you know, hey, this person, we need to keep an eye on this person, this person is you know, very Hitler-like, then people say, well, no, 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 because this person does nice things and Hitler was never nice. And so when you look at it and see, yes, they did, it's it's almost like, you know, a lot of cult leaders that are very, very charismatic and people are drawn to them. And so it's easier to kind of think, well, you could never get drawn in with this person. You could never like this person when in fact that's a lot of the way a lot of these people work is they use that fact that they are so kind quote-unquote kind and they're so you know open and you know charismatic and they can draw you in in order to get you to commit things that maybe some people never thought they could do
1: you know That's right. you got it I mean it's, it's really funny I mean he was a man who loved the films he used to show movies every night you know once the war broke out in West America after the war he jokingly promised a uh, premium to anybody who could bring him Clark Gable. Who, you know, Gable was flying <laughs> missions off he's Sherman. And yet the things he did were, I mean, incredible. So I think the, I think the historians do us a disservice when they don't reach for the real man because they're not alerting us to what the real dangers can be here. And uh, we're we're looking for monsters uh, to be wary of. And of course, they're monsters, but they're not monsters who come, you know, garbed. Mm -hmm. And he was very careful, you know. In a funny way, he undid himself as a human being in terms of having anybody know him. Because he didn't want any, he, he did not want the public to know who he was, you know. And so all of the, you know, the films you see of him, the official films, he's, he's uh, always in uniform, and he's um, very dour, and, you know, all of that. But if you look at the private photographs, you know, that were taken, because Eva Braun was his, you know, mistress for 10 years. and I mean, they lived together like man and wife. But the Germans didn't know that. She was the first lady of Germany and nobody knew it. They met in a photography shop where she worked and she was an avid photographer. And she's the only one who was allowed to photograph him, you know, in intimate circumstances around his home and so forth. You know, you you don't get this mechanical man anymore. It's a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. But why don't you take me where you want me to go? I kind of break away, I think. <laughs> no,
0: no, I think it's important. Honestly, I think it's really important, especially right now. In this day and age, I think it's very important for people to be learning this stuff. And I want to go back a little bit to uh, Friedrich's relationship with Hitler, because it's a very complicated one. They met each other in, when they became friends when they first met in Pacewalk Hospital. And he works very closely with Hitler in the novel. And he is working, you know, with the rebellion. He wants to take Hitler down. He doesn't want Hitler to succeed at this point. And he has tremendous guilt because he did help destroy medical records that showed Hitler was diagnosed as a psychopath. And even though the guilt is very evident throughout this novel... Do you think there is a part of him that still feels complicated feelings for Hitler, like might even
1: like him? I'm Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, he's our creation. So I, mm-hmm. uh, but, but uh, like Frankenstein, you know, once you create him, I guess he takes on his own personality. And uh, uh, the reader and you, uh, the critic, and reader, are as competent to answer that question as I am. However, if you ask me as, the, as Dr. Frankenstein, what was my um, intent? It wasn't precisely that. It was to portray a man who started out believing in the cause, which was born of the defeat in World War One. With a very unfair treaty that everybody today recognizes, the Treaty of Versailles was very unfair in in the sense that it imposed far too draconian measures on Germany. Um, for example, it created Czechoslovakia, um, was not a country before, and took pieces of other countries, particularly Germany. So about a million and a half Germans just lost their citizenship. You know That was the sudetenland and uh, you know the reparations uh, in terms of the money and the uh, Germany was only allowed a hundred thousand uh, person army which is barely enough you know if necessary to keep civil <laughs> uh, you know if you have to use an army for uh, so the reactions to all of that led to a formation not just of uh, the Nazi party but many parties, you know, throughout that period of time in Germany, who were trying to re-establish their national power and national identity. So our Friedrich, uh, our character, uh, is sympathetic to that in the beginning, as indeed many Germans were, as indeed many non-Germans viewing the scene were. And then, as time goes on, of course, as the uh, as the Nazi excesses. Uh, Ex- excesses uh, begin to mount. He becomes more and more alienated, and uh, uh, at at one point he wants to leave. And towards the end of Wolf, he wants to be done with them, mm-hmm. and go. And he's persuaded to uh, stay by a Jew who he helps escape. And that's a very real man who was, in fact. Uh, the deputy president of the Berlin police at the time and who had fought the Nazis. So we we have the complicated situation of a man who was close to Hitler in the beginning when it was far from clear that there was anything wrong with that, who becomes alienated intellectually and spiritually as things develop and who ultimately is persuaded to uh, stay and does stay in an effort to ameliorate some of the harm that's going on, and eventually joins a conspiracy to um, overthrow Hitler.
0: I I think it's kind of like there are some people who are really close to people who end up committing atrocities and end up doing horrible, horrible things. And when they were close to them and like them, they didn't see that part of them. And then when they saw it, I think there could always be that struggle of being like, uh, there's still that part of me that knows the nice things that they did for me and can still recognize that. And how do I recon- reconcile that within myself? And I think that's a lot of what he's struggling with throughout this novel. And you can see as the novel progresses, he seems to get uh, angrier and uh, more scared and more terrified of Hitler as the novel goes on. Like, I think he's scared of Hitler at the beginning, and then I think it just keeps ramping up, especially especially after November 5th, after the meeting of November 5th, 1937. I think that is kind of the tipping point for him where I think even any, any inkling of liking Hitler still that might've been within him, I think that gets shattered in that meeting is kind of the way I took it was that it even more so, cause he was just like, oh, okay, now this is even more real than I even imagined. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, for your listener, November 5th, 1937, is a very important moment. It's a very important moment for history, although I don't know that all the historians agree. Uh, It's a very important moment for history in our view and a very important moment in terms of our book. Because at that moment, Hitler becomes very clear that as a matter of his policy as the leader of Germany, he intends to uh, attack his neighbors particularly Austria and Czechoslovakia. And it's pretty clear that he's not going to stop there either. I must compliment you. I mean, you've really read this book and you really understand this book. um, Thank you. Because for you to pick out that date shows that you do understand it. On that day, a significant number of high-ranking, very high-ranking German um, generals turned against him and began to plot ways in which he could be stopped. You have to remember that uh, many of these men were uh, veterans of World War I. They didn't want to do it again. And um, it's extraordinary that in the pushing and pulling between them and the diehard Nazis around uh, Hitler, uh, they really tried to make a difference. As I say, they sent a delegation to try to meet with the Chancellor of England um and that of course is is a very important part of the story of sins of the fathers and uh, well you know some of these men had supported the german nationalism of hitler earlier mm-hmm. but they were unwilling to launch what could very well be another worldwide confrontation? You know, you look at what's going on in Russia today. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see to the what extent there is of uh, opposition within Russia itself to what uh, Putin is doing. And I would not be surprised if, um, and particularly if the very brave Ukrainians who are doing such an amazing thing now, I mean women and men fighting in the streets to preserve their country, if they're able to hold the Russians off for anything like the next entire week, I think that you will begin to see not just the mounting anger of the world, but I think there will be ever-increasing amounts of dissension within Russia itself. At least it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. But I think that would be the natural course of events. I don't well, want you that, to wander too far from you. No,
0: court. no, no. It's it's relatable. it relates to it, of course. Uh, well, I mean, there's already a lot of uh, Russian citizens out, out protesting and risking their lives, literally risking their lives to speak out against this. So there is already that. So, yeah, I think I think what you say could very, very well will happen. Ukrainians
1: are paying a terrible price right now. Yes. If they're able to maintain their independence, and if the Russian troops keep fighting in the Ukrainian streets, I think think this will turn out very badly for Mr. Putin. Uh, Of course, it's terrible for the people losing their lives. Uh, Unlike Czechoslovakia, which was subsumed immediately and whose allies betrayed them namely the English and the French Mm -hmm. at that time And, and France was actually in a in a treaty with Czechoslovakia. I think that the world revulsion will escalate to a point uh where I think Mr. Putin may not be very safe yeah. But back to yeah. your question.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, Well, I mean, this all relates. That's why I think this book is so important and <laughs> reading about this is so important. But that meeting on November 5th, 1937, happens to jog a memory in Friedrich, who has not had any memory since 1918. What do you think it was about that meeting that led to him regaining a memory?
1: Well, I know because we did it. Well, yeah. Uh, murder, I'm, I'm
0: <laughs> I know, this. but I mean, what do you think it was about that? Why do you think, why well, did you well, want I can that tell, to jar?
1: <laughs> I can tell our intention at that meeting when Hitler opened the gates of hell mm-hmm. by uh, making it clear that he intended to go east. Subsume countries, let I mean, we talked about eliminating a couple of million Czechs and uh, forming even more battalions and divisions after he had done swallowing Austria and Czechoslovakia. Our intent was that the horror of that to Friedrich, who had survived World War I, all busted up, needed plastic surgery to put them together, had no memory, was so fierce and terrible that it began to jog his memory a little bit about at least some of the scenes from the war. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of it, really, is to remind the reader through Friedrich about how terrible, terrible war really is. And, you know, these war movies we watch, uh, you know, sometimes make us forget um, that it isn't all guts and glory, the horrible mutilations Deaths, forever cripplings that these things visit uh, are simply staggering in their consequences. And that was the intent of the writing, that when Friedrich realized what was in store, it jogged his memory a little bit and uh, the horrors of war came swooping in. And he actively, at that point, actively joined a conspiracy to eliminate Hitler.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was which definitely...
1: actually existed. <laughs> no, Friedrich, he's yeah. our reporter. But the conspiracies that he joined over the next months uh, were real. The trip to England by the emissary of the German generals was real. We had Friedrich law so he could report it. The secret meeting with Churchill, who was not in office at the time, seeking his help, which he gave, actually took place. Well, you won't find it in many history books, and uh, I mean, you know we've documented it all. At the end of the novel, we wrote uh, some author's notes to, so that the reader could see that uh, the stuff wasn't made up; it's true.
0: And one of the characters in here um, who is a real was a real person um, is Carla Barthiel. Am I pronouncing that correct?
1: You're you're as good at that as I am. Because
0: (laughs) (laughs) I tried to look up the pronunciation of her last name and I couldn't find it anywhere. It kept giving me like brothel. (laughs) Um, But she was a real she was a real person. She was an accomplished photographer. And you made her Friedrich's love interest. Why did you pick her to be the love interest?
1: Well, Actually, you have to ask my partner that. He, he, he's oh. the one who located her. We thought it was... In, in, look, women played an important role. We we wanted to present a, a well-rounded character who had a life and loves. It was not just a... Uh, a television camera recording, you know, events. It's not possible to display the um, the rainbow of emotions uh, fully without giving him a full life, uh, um, a woman to care about, cares about him, with her own problems, her own ambitions, her own career, her own needs and wants, and. Uh, uh and how events impact all of that just as they would any um anybody else and uh, um, we did this in wolf you know um uh, we picked a very well-known woman at the time who's no longer remembered but who was a movie star of the first rank uh lillian harvey was Every bit in her day is famous as Garbo uh, uh, and Dietrich, and she was uh, his love interest at that time. And it was, and she was anti-Nazi, and she did leave, and she did come back, as she does come back in uh, *Sins*, and she did help a gay um, uh, Jewish um, artist. um, I say, uh, you know, uh, somebody worked in the movies to escape. Uh, and she was interrogated by the uh, Gestapo. So those things actually all happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't happen with Friedrich because he's ours, but uh, the rest <laughs> of it's true.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and I do want to applaud that, uh, that there are so many amazing women in this novel and women that usually like women that are, that work in brothels and stuff that are actually portrayed as human beings and not just, you know, Usually, women in that field are not given any kind of um, depth, and so I really appreciated that. I think that is a good thing too that um, they did not. Well, and I know no, that's well, true. So it's all true.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, I mean it's just a, it's amazing um, that Kitty, who is a, an important character in both uh, Wolf and Sins, mm-hmm. really did run a brothel. Um, she really did funnel her money out of town and, uh, in, uh, sins, she really was caught doing it. And the SS did confiscate her brothel and did turn it into a listening post. You know, it's all true. Yeah. It actually all happened. Uh, and we, we, we kind of like Kitty, um, and, uh, she's, a, she's an important character in both Wolf and sins, An earlier girlfriend of Friedrich in uh, Wolf, uh, Trudy. Uh, she was she was not a nice girl. She not uh, she was a, she's a real Nazi, and uh, um, you haven't I, you haven't met her yet because you haven't read Wolf. But uh, she was a real person, um, and so forth. So it, it, it was kind of fun if we could find people who were on the scene at the time and who did have the the contact with um, the so-called administration (laughs) at that time Um, so uh, because it that's life it's real it's uh, not make-believe
0: yeah 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 and and Carla in the book asks Friedrich to kill Hitler um, after that November 5th meeting He says if he did, others would just step into his shoes. So do you think that back then, if Hitler had been assassinated, do you think the Holocaust would have still happened?
1: No, I don't. And I don't think that Friedrich was right in what he said. And I think, what I mean, uh, it's perfectly plain. It should be. (laughs) Well, I can't say this. This It's presumptuous for me to say I was going to say it's perfectly plain to the reader, but I don't know what's perfectly plain to the reader. I know what I tended to be perfectly plain to the reader. Like all of us, Friedrich um, has difficulty doing something that is very dramatic and he doesn't really want to do. Uh, He knows Hitler has to be eliminated. He knows Hitler has to be removed. He did have a relationship with the man they were friends and he's looking to find a way to do that without necessarily killing him um he also knows if he takes out his gun and shoot him he, he's going to be dead himself and so and so he rationalizes uh that if he kills hitler well then either goring or goebbels or Himmler or, or one of these beauties is going to take over and and, and that's true that would that's what would have happened mm-hmm. Would they have marched to war? I don't believe so. I believe that was Hitler. Musingly enough, and I think you'll find this in the author's notes at the end, I'm not entirely sure because, you know, we added back and forth and so forth, but as I remember, the English really didn't understand this. The English, uh, Church, uh, the uh, not Churchill, Chamberlain, uh, really thought that Hitler was a moderate and that the people around Hitler were the extremists, but, but that really isn't true. Um, the Gorings and the Goebbels—they didn't necessarily want to go invade Russia and you know conquer the whole of Europe. That was really Hitler. Uh, and when you come to the Holocaust, they were certainly—I mean—vicious anti-Semites, all of them. <laughs> I mean, uh, but. There are lots of anti-Semites who, who don't necessarily want to kill all the Jews, you know. I <laughs> mean, uh, but Hitler. I believe that without Hitler, yes, there would have been rabid anti-Semitism. Yes, it, it also depends on how you define the Holocaust. You know, I mean, it's, it's, if if those words mean, you know, when they started murdering people, uh, I don't know if any of the others would have been able to lead to that point. Um, they certainly executed it. They did it. And you know, Hitler, a very interesting, very interesting thing about Hitler. Uh, there is not a shadow of doubt in my mind that he not only knew every detail of that but ordered it. And yet you will not find a single document in all of your studies of the Third Reich in which any report is made to him. His name is on anything at all. I mean, he understood very well that what he was doing was I mean, beyond shocking. And yet you have some Holocaust-type deniers who go around saying Hitler didn't know. It's totally absurd. Uh, totally absurd. And I don't want to go into all the detail because it will not be it'll be boring to, to your listeners. But that, that is inconceivable. On the other hand, he kept himself as far away from it as he could, you wouldn't find his fingerprints on it, really. Whereas, you know, Himmler got reports from the Einsatzgruppen who went behind the lines in Russia. They reported back a million Jews killed, four battalions of the Einsatzgruppen, and they, you know they had very good records about how many they were knocking off. And then they had the Wannsee Conference in January of '42, presided over by uh, Eichmann, in, in which they discussed the Final Solution and killing all the Jews. Nothing with Hitler's name on it um and that is really the telltale of how even in, in his crazy view of life, he understood that what he was doing was fundamentally wrong and indefensible, the very fact that he had this massive murderous scale in which millions of people were incinerated and which you know cost his... Uh, war effort, a, a lot of uh, effort to do that, and distraction. In spite of all that, you won't find a hit. you won't find one conference, one memo, nothing with him pinned to it. Although he absolutely know. Yeah, I, th- I no, think. I think yeah. the Holocaust. If you mean the final uh, extermination of the Jews, yes, I do not believe that that would have happened without Hitler. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And your novel, like you stated, is about the German offer- officers who lost their lives participating in the July 1944 assassination attempt of Hitler. And this story talks about how these same men risked their lives to, prevent, to try and prevent Hitler from starting the war. Um, and this is a story, of course, that a lot of people don't know about. I didn't know about this. And so, why was it so important to tell this story that many do not know? And then, what can we learn from these brave men?
1: Well, to begin with, let's be clear some of the, uh, some of the, it's just amazing. I mean, I think your readers are going to be, listeners are going to be quite, uh, I use my idiom for what you do, (laughs) quite shocked when when you really think about this. The 1938 plotters, and if you do take a look at the book, there can be no doubt that that's actual and real, and they did it, and they were planning to do it, and they had it all lined up. They had the troops all identified to take Hitler down. They were not discovered in 1938, although two successive chiefs of staff of the German army, Beck first and then Holder, when Beck resigned, were leaders of the conspiracy. Admiral Canaris, who was the head of all military intelligence for the German uh, government, was a leader of it. Let's take Canaris, for example. And uh, his chief of staff, whose name was Oster. And the man who they sent to meet with Chamberlain, who did meet with Churchill, uh, was named von Kleist. These men were not discovered until 1944, when the abortive plot to bomb Hitler on July 20th took place. And then Canaris' diaries were found, and they found, and, and Hitler learned, and Hitler first learned about Churchill's 1938 letter in 1944. And Kleist, who was himself not a member of the 44 conspiracy, was then hung because Hitler found out what he did in 38. Um, Beck was the leader of the 44 conspiracy, so there was nothing nothing new there. But Canaris really didn't have much to do with the 44 effort, but Hitler learned because his notes were found, his diary was found to what he had done in 38, and he was executed by being forced to march naked up to the gallows where he was on. Now, what's this about? The reason why I think you don't know a lot about this is because soon after the war, you know, passions ran high, and the earliest accounts of uh, the war and the earliest accounts of the German resistance focused on the 44 effort. And it's easy for us on the other side of the aisle, to think of the 44 effort by German officers trying to kill Hitler to prevent losing the war. Because by July 20th, 1944, which was the date of the Stauffenberg bomb and explosion, it was plain that Hitler Hitler had led Germany into a disaster and they were losing the war, and they were going to lose the war. Nobody was thinking in July of 1944 Nazi Germany was going to win. By that time, the English and the French, uh, no, withdrawn, uh, The English and the Americans had landed. The Russians were pounding from the other direction. And so these German officers who tried to kill him in 1944 are viewed as people who have taken action only after the war was lost, you see. Mm-hmm. But these same men tried to do it in 1938 to prevent the war. And it's never been much in the interest of us, the victors, you know, to recognize them for that. And instead, we treat them as men who acted only after it was plain that Germany was going to lose. Am I making any sense to you? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And yet, what we have written is absolutely historically correct. I mean, the notes to it make it absolutely plain, and you can, if you dig deep enough, you can find that it's all true. The November 10th meeting, the fact that the German generals began to go in opposition, the fact that they tried to reach out to the English to help, the fact that they tried to meet with uh, uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain, the fact that he would not do so in writing, he said he wouldn't do it uh, in private correspondence. All that's reproduced in the notes. So the question remains, what is fiction? Is it something labeled a novel because the story is told by Friedrich? Or are they history books that don't mention any of these things? Yeah. Because it's more convenient to see the people who are our enemies as entirely bad rather than, you know, as some folks over there who are really trying to uh, to do the right thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's important for us to know this stuff, too, to know who they really were,
1: too. Um, well, why bother studying history? <laughs> Do it right. Oh, exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and, and so often we don't or we leave off the stuff that's inconvenient for us right. in a way, too. I think that's the other part of it is it's inconvenient to learn certain things. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. And you have um, the famous quote from Vol- Voltaire at the beginning of your novel, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. So what does that quote mean to you personally?
1: Well, it means that uh, to me, that if you are going to suspend your reason and common sense, if you're going to join a group, uh, a program, if you're going to put yourself in a position where uh, you lose all common sense and balance, don't be surprised if you start acting in ways in which every social norm is thrown out the window. I think that was, I haven't studied Voltaire or have his quote, but it seems to me pretty plain that that's what it, what it means. If you're going to mm-hmm. suspend your values, your ethics, your common sense and judgment uh, for any purpose, you uh, run the risk of uh, opening the door to hell. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ag- agree completely. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people want to ignore that, honestly, <laughs> want to ignore the truth of that and, and don't want to see that when they're in the midst of that, sadly. So, yeah. Yeah. agree. Um, So what do you think the world has failed to learn from the atrocities of the Holocaust?
1: Well, I think. You know, we, we we view these events in their culmination, and we're all horrified. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your beliefs are—Republican, I mean, Democrat, something in between—doesn't matter. I, nobody, no decent human being, is anything other than repelled by the results of this. But we don't often stop and think about, you know, how we got that far, and that's where the Voltaire quote really in my opinion, bites. Look at the chain of reasoning that the Nazis employed to get to the final, what they call the final solution, which was the final conclusion. First, that there exists people, groups of people who are lesser human beings, who are racially defective, by the way, they didn't think that it was just Jews. They thought yeah. Negroes were the same. Uh, black people were. I may not use the right nomenclature because I'm using the nomenclature of their time. Indeed, they thought other, their own people who, if they had defects, you know, weren't worth the food, they termed them useless eaters. And so they employed a relentless logic on top of a horrible cornerstone. So that's Voltaire's absurdity, which led to, you know, uh, the rest. So if you believe that there's a group of people who are racially defective, who represent a virus within your community, who are unworthy of being maintained, then what do you do? You begin to try to get them out. So you pass lots of laws. Which are discriminatory and you make it so that they are forced to leave but, but what do you do when you can't get rid of them and it will be why but one of the reasons is the other countries will not take them you know and that's mm-hmm. in the book too so no matter what laws you pass and no matter how draconian they are you take away their right to even have a name you know you make them take jewish names so you'd be sure you know that they're jews and then you you continue on that they can't practice any profession. They can't do this. They can't do that. And they have to leave. But if they want to leave, they have to leave all their money behind. And there's no place to go. And then when you're finally stuck with having them there, uh, and then it gets worse. Why? Because after November 10th, you start moving east. And then what happens? As you conquer a new country, you're getting more Jews. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you ghettoize them. When they couldn't work anymore, you start putting them in ghettos. But then a great disaster happens to you, you see. You invade Poland. And once he invaded Poland, three million additional Jews fell into his hands, right? The largest concentration of Jews in Europe. So he couldn't even get rid of all the Jews in Germany before, you know, he entered Austria. When he entered Austria, he picked up another couple of hundred thousand Jews. And then he got Czechoslovakia, and there were 350,000 Jews there. And then he winds up in Poland, he's got 3 million Jews. And then, logically, the imposition of logic was, well, if no one will take him, and there's no place for him to go, and we can't possibly house him, we'll just kill him more. And that's exactly the logic. And they did the same in a sense, with their own people, what you know, a, somebody who is defective should not be allowed to procreate, and so they, you know, they neuter them. Mm-hmm. And then, if if somehow you miss and someone's pregnant, you make a forced, of, you know, abortion. Forced. I'm not talking about right. You know, I'm talking about no, I know. the yeah. state telling you, you know, you can't. And then you get to the point where you have uh, people who have Down syndrome or you know other uh, things which take them out from the nazi point of view uh, normal and they, they become categorized as um, useless eaters they, that was the phrase that they used to kill them too them. and there the catholic church did uh, rise up uh, a couple of catholic bishops one uh, and that by the way is the only document that i'm aware of with hitler's actual signature Authorizing that program to euthanize, and then there was a howl even within Germany about that. I may have spoken so long that I think I may have lost the sense of your question. But I
0: no, no, you were. I mean, you know, I think you know because the question was about what we have failed to learn from the atrocities, and oh, I well, think it what is, we failed
1: yeah. to learn is that we have to stop it at the beginning.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. you see?
1: and what the, where the, where it begins is not. Uh, necessarily with state action. Where it begins is where people make snide comments about each other because of their sex or the race or their physical attributes. Where it begins are where clubs, you know, discriminate, even private clubs. Mm-hmm. It begins there too because what about all those club members who don't rise up and say, "Hey, you know, you can't, you can't." say that somebody can't come in here because they're Hispanic or because they're, because where they go to pray. I mean these are first steps. Uh, they're not as terrible as the others, but if, he, if they didn't begin there, they couldn't end there, There meaning the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. If decent men and women were to stick with the principles of their own religions, of their own ethics, of what they, in their good moments, want to teach their children. And and do, but don't always practice themselves. If we don't take first steps, we don't get the final steps. I think that has to be part of the message as well.
0: Yeah, because I think people think what happens is just overnight. You know, it's like all of a sudden everything is horrible and there aren't any signs beforehand, which isn't true. Like that's you true. said, it's just small little. It's small little things that build up and build up and build up, and the more you ignore them, the more dangerous they become.
1: It became yeah. a relentless logic. One step, they, they were good at that. They just logically, well, if this is okay, then that's okay. Reasoning by analogy is is a useful thing, to be sure. Mm-hmm. But as in anything, when you employ it to the extent that you get, it stretches to the point where first principles are lost. Differences in degree make differences in kind. They really do. Mm-hmm. So but that's a larger topic. i just we just mm-hmm. Alan and I just wrote these books. We're not yeah. philosophers. Yeah,
0: but but it's but it's kind of in the same, you know, realm where if we were trying to learn from before this all happened, so yeah, and um, and I want to know. This is a big subject. There's a lot of horrible things involved in this. Were there moments that you were mentally exhausted at all with the research or any part of writing this, or
1: even Wolf? So. Well, sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, there were times when uh, one or another of us, or both of us, said, oh, "Yeah, let's take a break and stuff like that." As a matter of fact. Uh, we're debating right now whether there will even be another book, uh, because it's uh, it's like hitting your head against the wall. You know, it feels awfully good when you stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering that if there was uh, if there were plans for a third novel. I was wondering that, but uh, well,
1: yeah. this one just came out. It's a, you know, both he and I have other lives, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't know. we're, We're thinking about it, but we haven't made a decision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think this has been a very, very important conversation, especially, like I said in the beginning, and we've said a couple times, in light of what is happening right now in the world. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I really, really encourage everyone to go out and read both of these novels both Wolf and Sins of the Fathers. I really encourage you to do that. So Herb, if you want to just tell everyone where they can find you, or if there's anything else you want to promote.
1: I'm not in the promoting business. I'm in the writing (laughs) business (laughs) and the law business. Uh, So I've written other books So that if anybody's interested, they can find it. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not not here to hawk them, but thanks very much for having me. And I appreciate (laughs) it. And by the way, uh, Aaron, as I, uh, as I wrote you, uh, you really read this book. You really understand it. And, uh, uh, I'm saying this at the end of the meeting, so it's not to influence you at the beginning. And, uh, uh, I very, you know, you work pretty hard when you write a book. And it's awfully nice to meet somebody who's really read it. Thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. On TikTok at it's a fandom thing pod. If you would like to be a potential interview guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And on our next episode, and you may have already seen it with our live stream, we are going to be heavy again. Another heavy but important topic where we are going to be talking about when fans cross that line and become stalkers and maybe even more. So there will definitely be trigger warnings for that. So this has been a heavy week. I just want to say I'm sending love. And I know that's kind of trivial and trite. These are scary times we're living in. and. um very scary. And so it's important to be aware and it's important to do what you can. And especially to speak out, just even the little things, speak out on those, because if you don't, um, they can lead to bigger atrocities. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate.